0: Where we are challenging assumptions about marketing and technology, and we check yesterday's thinking at the door. Where truth drops like an atom bomb, and knowledge flows like Niagara Falls. Each week, we challenge assumptions that have been holding back healthcare marketing, and explain how we can do better.
1: Join us. This is a healthcare wrap. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jared Johnson, and welcome to the Marketing Forward Movement where marketing, communications, and technology are finally playing on the same team and making healthcare all about consumers and innovation. If you want to be a part of it, then this is the place for you. We're going to help you find your place in this new movement, and you're going to be one of the ones leading meaningful change. We have no choice but to move forward as an industry, and we need your help to evolve, accelerate, and shift the way that healthcare is experienced. If you haven't yet subscribed to the Shift.Health YouTube channel, do it today, and you'll have access to our latest video chat series called The Resilience Journey. Folks, this is one of the funnest projects I've been on in a long time. It's a series that was created for everyone who's struggling with an unexpected job change, a derailed career plan, or unfulfilling work. Join me as I uncover the unexpected moments in the career journeys of admirable leaders by digging into the moments in their careers that we don't often hear about. Episode 5 features Rachel Ford-Hutman, and she answers the question that she has gotten the most since launching her PR agency during the pandemic. How do you know when the time is right to make that next big career move? It's free and available on demand at shift.health so go subscribe on YouTube right now. So here's what's going to go down today folks. We'll kick things off with the flavor of the week about how to convey the full value of marketing. Then we've got Danielle O'Frey in the house to chat about why marketers should care about patient safety. In fact, I'll dare say why we should care a lot about it. Are you ready? Let's go.
0: Flavor of the week
1: How do we convey the full value of marketing? I recently asked if there's a name for all the parts of marketing other than acquisition and advertising, because most days it still feels like that's the main focus and that's what people care about, which is fine, but there's so much more and I don't want those things to be forgotten. Things like experience design, data science, business models, storytelling, reputation management, brand experience, retention and loyalty programs, creative, Martech architecture, operations, sales enablement, user design, nurturing, web and mobile app development, and so much more. And I was delighted and pleasantly surprised by many of the responses, and here are some of my favorites. First, Jessica Walker, CEO and founder of Care Sherpa, talked about expectations management. She said, I think back to my hospitality days and the focus on expectations. I think smart marketers set the tone with the work they do around supporting the patient or consumer expectations. The messages created can verify a brand is setting, matching, managing, and exceeding expectations. John Marzano, who's the principal strategy consultant and president of Jam3 Strategic Marketing and PR, described it as consumer demand management. And I like that definition because it implies that everything comes back to the relationship with the consumer. Alyssa Carter, director of marketing at WealthSource, said the following, I think chunking these into different levels of the buyer's journey makes the most sense. Thinking less about the tactic itself and more about what goal the type of job is achieving. It's tough because a lot of these, like reputation management, can surpass different stages of the funnel or impact all of them. But at the end of the day, I think marketing leaders need to determine what their strategic goals are and work backwards from there. And finally, Dave Winicky, the healthcare innovation leader with PK, said this. Since you've named the first chapter of the journey acquisition, I'd suggest the next is engagement, which pays off on all of the motives that drove acquisition. And if that goes well, loyalty covers the lifetime value that gives brands their ground truth. Conveying the full value of marketing will take some work, but it starts by defining it, and I thank those of you who gave those responses and gave us more to think about there. And that's the flavor of the Week. All right, hey listeners, today I've got Danielle Ofri in the house. Danielle is a writer, an editor, and a practicing physician in New York City. She's the editor-in-chief of the Bellevue Literary Review, and what's really interesting to me, on top of all that, she's the author of five books, all about life and medicine, and today we're going to dive into... Some of the things she's talking about in her latest book. Can't wait to share this with you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Danielle to the show. How are you doing today?
2: Uh, Jared, thanks. Great to be here.
1: Remind me so you are in the New York area. You said you're calling from Manhattan today. And that just makes me think how much things have changed even in the last few weeks and months. I'm sitting here in Arizona, you're sitting there in Manhattan. And and, uh, when we both look out the window, things are quite different than they were. A few weeks and months ago. So for better or for worse, the world sure has changed quite a bit. But how are things going
2: today? Now things have come. March and April were pretty hairy. And I suppose that clinicians in Arizona and in the Southwest are well aware of what that is like. I mean, now the, the um, challenge for us in New York is all the patients whose medical care got shunted aside during the COVID uh, pandemic surge for us, you know, a whole like for three or four months, all these patients got lost. So we have to get them back, people with diabetes and cancer and heart disease, whose care, you know, has been compromised during these months. We have to get them back into care with the new precautions. So it's all a challenge, but we're we're on it.
1: You are, I, I know, I know clinicians are and frontline workers are and, and uh, truly appreciate all the work that's going on to address those exact things because that's the part that gets missing from the headlines is, oh yeah, by the way, all the rest of care that was going on didn't stop or get put on pause because of covid so that was just a layer that that we're all now having to, having to figure out now so so just want to uh, express my thanks for working through that part while everything else is going on
2: thank you it's been it's, been very, it's just been very interesting and it sort of brings to light you know what do we value in medical care and all of a sudden i think covid kind of ground us down to the bare minimum and how do we do that and and you know, when I this book that I just published, "When We Do Harm: A Doctor Confronts Medical Error," came out in April, right smack in the middle of the pandemic, which certainly wasn't planned, but it made me start to think of, you know, how do we look at the care we give? When does medical care fall short? How much of that is our fault? How much is the system's fault? And then, what do we do? And COVID kind of forced us to to improvise and figure out the ways that we could make care as good as we can under the circumstances, but no doubt, you know, it wasn't as the way any of us would have liked it to have been, but that's the hand that we were dealt.
1: It is, isn't it? I I think that part of the reality of the situation uh, with the pandemic, it is, it's both troubling and, and at the same time, it kind of... Gives me some relief to, to know that we're going to be able to figure this out. That no no one had an upper hand in this. It's not like you know somebody somewhere else figured this out and is kind of putting this on all of us. We're all in the same situation in terms of trying to figure things out without having known beforehand what to do. So in in, in a small way, that's kind of kind of a relief.
2: Yeah, I mean, it felt like we were building the airplane while we were flying it, which was a little scary, it was also in a strange way exhilarating and, and not in that it was pleasurable. I mean, clearly patients were suffering, patients were dying. It was a very sad and grief-stricken time. But if you imagine, you know, kind of the rest of the world was stuck quarantined. People were bored. People felt useless. We had unity of purpose. We got to leave our house every day and go to work. We had something to do and something, you know, important to do that mattered. And we got to work with our colleagues and and to be with people who are, you know, committed and determined, it was inspiring, is what it was, even if it was incredibly sad, hard, frustrating, but you know we had this goal. And you know, when you talk about what gives people meaning in life, what creates happiness, it is having purpose and meaning. And so I feel those of us in healthcare, we were really fortunate in some ways to have this and to be able to give patients as good a care as we could have, but recognizing that so many patients suffered both with COVID and those without COVID, and we wish it could have been better for them too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it does, like you said, it, it brings to mind what do we truly value in the care that we're providing? And what's the ultimate goal here? And I think it's really fascinating when we start looking at that question and examining that through the lens of the topic of the book, which is the topic of medical error, and the standpoint of, of you know, how that's important for the future of healthcare, uh, provider organizations of health systems of hospitals and practices to be able to keep the lights on after this, because now you're, you're addressing this with a through a totally different lens than, than we were twelve months ago. So let's dive into that for the for our rap battle. Rap battle a rap battle is where we challenge the status quo in healthcare. We usually look at Things from a from a marketing or business or communication standpoint, today is is one of those that's going to be really interesting to me because there is so much of this that that we need to understand from every angle. We need to understand what's going on when we're talking about medical error, and we need to know what to do about it. So let's lead up to to the book itself. Danielle, talk us through like how did this become an idea how is it something that you finally knew at some point this is something i need to get out there in the world
2: well it's funny a couple of years ago i got an email from my editor and when you're the only physician in a publishing house full of english majors you are the recipient of everybody's medical questions so this time she emailed me an article about a study that showed that medical error was the third leading cause of death and she said to me, you know, is it true? And I really said, I, I didn't really have an answer. And not just because I'm a little behind on my journals, but because I'm a primary care doctor in a big city hospital. It's very busy. So if medical error was really number three, I should be seeing a lot of it, right? As much as I see cancer and heart disease, which I see a ton of, but I'm not or at least it feels like I'm not. And so that got me wondering, is it that medical error, maybe it isn't the third leading cause of death the data are wrong, or maybe it is, but we have blinders on and we're simply not seeing it for a variety of reasons. And that became the impetus to start writing this book and kind of digging in. And the first thing I hit upon on when I got into the, you know, the weeds of this is, well, how do you define a medical error? It's a lot harder than it sounds. I mean, yes, you cut off the wrong leg, that's easy. We know that's wrong. But what what about for example, a patient goes for a cat scan and has a renal insufficiency, has a kidney reaction to the contrast and ends up on dialysis or ends up with, you know, harmed. It's not an error per se, but it's certainly patient harm. It wasn't what the patient came in for. The patient's worse off than when when they started. And then the idea is, well, how do you know if an error causes death? That's also pretty difficult. There's no checkbox on a death certificate to say, oh, this patient died because of a medical error. But because, you know, sick patients... Are, have a lot of moving gears and lots of you know possibilities for things to go wrong. So if you imagine a patient, for example, who's dying of cirrhosis, of liver failure, and they're given the wrong antibiotic, and they die, right? That wrong antibiotic, that's the medical error, and they died. But did the medical error cause the death? Did the patient die from the error? It's very hard to figure out. And so I think the short answer to the question of, is medical error the third leading cause of death? I think we'll never actually know the number because it's so hard to, to tabulate and measure and even define, um, it probably isn't number three, but it's not zero. It's still pretty high up there. And so we still need to be working on this you know, at full speed.
1: Very true. And what about when we experience inequities in, in healthcare, how do inequities in medicine worsen those outcomes?
2: Well, I think COVID-19 really pulled the curtain back. I, I think we all knew this already, but it showed it really in stark relief how much the inequities of medicine Trans, uh, transferred and, and um, transpired into inequities and outcomes in health. And we realized that yes, we have inequities in healthcare, but we're simply a reflection of inequities in society that you can't separate them out. And the reason that black and brown and Native American patients, you know, suffered much more in COVID-19 is not just because they're gen- you know genetically different or because they did things wrong. No, it's because they, you know, many of them didn't have jobs that allowed them to quarantine in place Or, you know, didn't have homes that enabled them to be with just two or three people. They couldn't isolate. They had three or four generations. Or they didn't have access to care because of health insurance issues. All these things, you could call them pre-existing conditions in the inequities department. And that's what gave them much worse outcomes. And it wasn't anything about necessarily the care being different. But what happens in society to make things unequal and then the care on top of that is not going to be as good. So... We yeah and yes we do have inequities in healthcare. I don't want to give us a free pass that we do need to work on, but we also have to work on the inequities in society because we can make healthcare as equitable as possible. And if society doesn't reflect that, then we won't get very far.
1: Ooh, I really like that. Let's drill down on that for a little bit more. So kind of like a best case and worst case scenario, right? Like the best case is that we figured out on both ends that there we see progress in healthcare and in society, and then the worst case you know in my mind would be that neither happens and, and that we just don't see enough that that it makes a difference i think we will always see the efforts going on and yet it's very possible that a lot of work could be uh, could happen towards addressing inequities and and disparities especially in the in the society side and we might not see that reflected unless it's something that's continually put in front of us as as something to think about and talk about. And just as as we're seeing the dialogue open more in society, I'm I don't know if you're seeing it yet in healthcare. I, I hope we see it, and if not, if it's not happening now, I hope it opens. I hope it it happens soon, uh, where we start seeing the dialogue opening up a little bit more to address the disparities in healthcare too.
2: I think it actually is, and I'm partly because. Healthcare workers are really, you know, on the ground seeing this really in stark detail. And certainly in COVID, we saw it very grippingly and dispiritingly. We saw how much the healthcare inequities have made a difference. And many people have become activists because of that. I mean, witness, though, the white coats for black lives. So many hospitals, including ours, had multiple rallies and demonstrations in front of the hospital. People coming out in their scrubs and white coats to recognize... That uh, COVID nineteen wasn't the only pandemic. That racism is also a pandemic, and you know socioeconomic inequalities. That's a pandemic too, and our patients are being harmed by that. And I think we recognize that this is our lane. And, and a real parallel, I think, uh, comes up with a uh, with gun safety. You know, after the last few sets of school shootings, you, many medical workers sort of took on gun violence as a public health issue. And I, I think somewhere along the lines, someone from the NRA tweeted, you know, stay in your lane, and then medical workers took up, this is our lane. Gun violence is a medical and public health issue. And we can't just say, oh, that's just politics on one side, we stay out of it. No, it matters to our patients. And I think COVID-19 is giving us the same idea that this is our lane, that societal equities are important. I just saw a piece about a a clinic in the Bronx where they're helping patients register to vote because being able to vote and have a say matters in equitable distribution of societies and resources. And I think that many healthcare workers feel emboldened that it is our place to talk to our senators and congresspeople about making sure people have access to health care, that they have access to food and good schools and all, because all these, we know they matter for health outcomes. And so it really is our lane.
1: It genuinely is. I'm glad it's reassuring to hear that, that those conversations are happening and that, that recognition that this is your lane. I think that's critical to these these dialogues happening and leading to eventually some, some change in what's happening there. I'm, I'm glad to think about it that way. And then another way to look at all of this, I mean, everything, you know, when when we kind of get back to the specifically the topic of medical error, when we think about it, you know, consumers are already out there, they're already feeling unsafe about coming back to the doctor's office. And unfortunately, I know too many marketers out there who will be like, you know, why would we want to address medical error? Uh, You know, let's just sweep that under the rug, and that's the last thing we'd want to hear. And yet I see this huge opportunity. Here's another way to be transparent. No, instead of covering it up here's actually a way for you to lean into this topic and address it head on and to recognize how much trust you can build with consumers right now. I see it as an opportunity. I, I don't know what you think about this. Like, how do, what, what do you tell a hospital when, when the topic comes up? Do they sweep it under the rug or what, what do they do with it?
2: Well, one thing to think about is just take the simple self-interested subject of patient satisfaction. Right, Those patient satisfaction scores, they now matter in terms of reimbursement. And so hospitals really care about that. And now often trying to boost those patient satisfaction scores, you know, we get a nice coffee machine in the waiting room, we get valet parking, have better graham crackers, you know, in the lobby. All of that is nice, but... That's not what patients really want, right? They want really good healthcare and they want to feel that they're in a safe place where they're not going to be harmed. And if you ask them which they'd prefer, you know, fancy coffee or safe medical care, you know, it's, it's no contest there. And so if you really want to talk about patient, you know, patient satisfaction, It's when you, you know, press the buzzer in your room in the hospital and a nurse is able to answer right away because there's enough, you know, the nurses are staffed appropriately and they're not understaffed and doing double shifts that when they go see their doctor, they're not rushed out in seven minutes. They have enough time to handle their issues that will give you patient satisfaction much more than like, you know, the fancy digs and all the artwork, which is lovely. I don't there's nothing wrong with that, but. That's, you know, I think patients much more would have more prefer to have time with their doctors than to have fancy artwork on the walls.
1: 100% agreed. I used to be one of those who, who had the fortune of reading every single patient review that came in on a, on a website for any provider, and very little that had to do with the facilities themselves. It almost always had to do with, with bedside manner or a billing question, you know, things that you can address when thinking about the experience that a patient is actually going through and not, not all the little perks and, and amenities like it's a hotel. So, uh, what a great, a great way to kind of connect a few of these things, because it does all matter for the patient experience. It all does matter with what kind of, you know, with really what we have going on here. And, and,
2: and patients really do want transparency. There was a great study a couple of years ago in the annals, and it was a hypothetical study in which patients had different scenarios in which the doctor had made an error and whether the doctor told them about it or not, and would they keep or fire the doctor. and. The patients for whom the doctor told them about the error were more likely to keep the doctor than fire them because they felt, okay, now I can trust this person. If I know they'll be straight with me, even with the bad news and things that don't go well, I'm in good hands. And it's a little counterintuitive, but patients, and it's been my experience too, when I've told patients when things have, you know, not gone so well and I've offered them the chance to, you know, maybe you'll want to switch doctors. Most of them want to stay because they're so relieved that they get an honest answer. I think patients are terrified. They walk into a hospital. It's like, you know, they're going to visit Mars. You don't speak the language. You don't know the customs. You're at a loss. All your skills in real life mean nothing in this place. And so you're really vulnerable, not to mention you're sick and frightened or in pain or feverish. And so you don't know when things go right or go wrong. And so if you get people telling you what's actually happening, you feel really relieved. And then you want to stay at that place. That's the place you want for yourself and for your family.
1: And all of these are things that, that anyone in a marketing or communications role seems like this ought to be the the world they're living in. I don't know if it always is. Quite frankly, it should be. These are the kinds of things they ought to be thinking about.
3: Hey there, listeners. If you're all about listening to your website visitors to learn more about how to improve your website experience, then G-Site is for you. G-Site is a suite of digital improvement tools that capture the voice of the digital customer hi i'm rob klein co-founder of g site and founder and ceo of klein and partners a market research and brand consulting firm dedicated to helping hospitals and health systems find their brand voice i co-developed this service offering with the team at graystone.net several years ago gsite helps you prioritize and focus your website improvement and enhancement efforts it's a suite of solutions including a pop-up website experience survey tool a user-friendly dashboard and reporting tool a user behavior tracking tool, expert consulting services, and more. What if I told you that 8% of your visitors have a new negative opinion of your brand after visiting your website? Now multiply that number by the total number of annual visitors. Does that number scare you? If so, go to www.graystone.net forward slash gsite to learn more about how we can help and sign up for an introductory overview. Hope to speak with you soon. If we look at this from
1: a marketing angle, what should marketers know about medical error? I think that's an important point about the fact that that there's even a study to show this, that consumers actually would prefer to know that an error had taken place. So what should marketers know about medical error and how has it changed because of COVID?
2: Well, one thing is, you know, I started writing the book, I started writing looking for medical errors, but then I quickly realized that, you know, we're really broadening the term to patient harm or patient safety. Because again, there are things that happen like, you know, decubitus ulcers, pressure ulcers that may not be an error, but it's certainly harm to the patient. So thinking more broadly about improving patient safety, which encompasses medical errors, adverse outcomes, things you, whatever it is that you didn't want, is one way to look at it because medical errors are just a small smidget of it. I think it's important to understand that medical errors nearly always have a systems issue behind it. So maybe, yes, maybe the nurse grabbed the wrong medication and she clearly did something wrong and she should you know understand that and, and be spoken to about that. There's probably a system's reason that made it easier for that to happen. You know, maybe the bottles looked alike, or maybe the lighting's really poor, it's hard to read. Maybe she has twice as many patients as she should have, and so you're just really so rushed. Maybe 16 people are interrupting her to ask for ginger ale and, you know, directions to the bathroom that she can't focus on her work. And so even when a person makes an error, there's almost always a system's reason that made the error more likely to happen. And, you know, we tend to want to focus on punishing the person who made the error. Oh, let's sue them for malpractice. Let's fire them. Let's reassign them. But really, and I'll separate out the the small number of cases of true negligence, right? That's a different story. The truly negligent people, yes, let's boot them out. You know, let them be sued. They don't deserve to be in the profession. But that's really a tiny minority. The vast majority of errors are committed by caring, committed clinicians who are trying to do the right thing and have made a mistake. And it's not because they're being negligent. So we wanna, yes, educate the person about the error, but more importantly, not dump it on them, that we need to, that the errors, it's about the, the, fixing the system. So the thing that I always, you know, when I see this marketing ploy, you know, we're going for zero medical error or, you know, zero adverse events. And that feels like, you know, marketing fluff. There's never going to be zero, right? We're human beings, we will make mistakes and our technology will make plenty of mistakes too. Zero, if we get zero medical error, then someone's fudging the data. And that's always the case. And we need to recognize that that's impossible. But we can be honest and say, we're looking to make it safer, to decrease medical error, to decrease the adverse events, and be honest. And, and it maybe doesn't sound as sexy. Oh, we're shooting for 20% fewer errors, but that's a real thing you can achieve. So thinking about making the overall system safer, looking at the system, of course, that means supporting the clinicians, not putting them in situations that make error possible. And I mean, COVID-19 is sort of an exception in which people were thrown into situations that, you know plenty of errors and things happened, but it's really unique. But just talk about the regular medical world, you know, pre-pandemic. I think that doctors and nurses are being pushed into positions that force them to cut corners. We give them too many patients to see in too little time. And with an EMR that's so demanding of, of data input that there's no Way you can think about your patient, consider, debate, revise, ask more questions. It's almost impossible. And the only way to survive is to cut corners. And that's terrible. It's terrible for patient safety and patient care. It's also terrible for your staff. Making committed people cut corners is corrosive to the spirit of committed people. If the people don't care, it doesn't matter. But if the people care, then it really matters.
1: So important to remember it. And I, I like to consider this, that at the beginning of this dialogue, of a discussion that can hopefully stay in the public eye for a while and recognize the value of it, how to talk about it, and the importance of acknowledging, like I said, there's never going to be zero medical error. As we're starting to wrap up here, what, what would you say is the most important thing you'd want to convey from the book, either from writing it or from something you, you discovered or, or a theme of the book? What's the most important point you'd want to convey?
2: Medicine is a team sport, but it's not just the the doctors and nurses who are on the team. It's also the administrators, it's the patients, it's the families. and, And so often it feels like we're on opposing teams or at least teams with opposing agendas. But there's really only one goal, and that's to help the patient get better. And we sometimes lose sight of that in the day-to-day operations of running the hospital, getting things done, keeping length of stay down, you know, all these things, keeping the ratings up and the rankings up. We often forget about that goal. And I think a question, you know, a way to help ourselves keep that goal in mind. And and I... Same thing goes for when you're trying to, you know, minimize uh, implicit bias, you know, inherent stereotypes and cultural competence, things that we often don't do so well. is to stop and think with each patient, you know, what if this person were my mother, my child, if it were someone I loved and cared about, what's the care I'd want them to get? What would I want their doctor or nurse to be going into this with? And if I if i can sort of use that approach and the same thing for the marketer the administrator you know the clerical staff if this person coming to me or was coming to our hospital our clinic our medical institution and this were my elderly parent or grandparent what would i want them to experience and that's what i want to do as best as i can as safe as i can and if it's not perfect i think i want you know my parent or grandparent to get an honest answer about what didn't quite go go right so really kind of imagine on a on a single human level and i think in some ways covid did bring that out as you you could really sort of see how patients were experiencing a very challenging thing and we all felt my gosh this could be me what would i want you know if it were me or my family there what is really the best we can do and how can we be honest if we don't quite reach that
1: what a great thought. What a great way to kind of tile a lot of this together. And I want to make sure I give our listeners a chance to know how to pick up the book. It's called When We Do Harm. Danielle, has, how do people find it?
2: You can find it at any bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local independent bookstore. Please help them out. I keep all my writings at my website. It's just danielleofri.com, O-F-R-I. And you can all my New York Times op-eds and articles are there. I also have a monthly newsletter, a non-commercial, just as articles as they come out. You can subscribe there. You can also contact me, and you know there's a contact button that comes to me, and I'm happy to answer any questions.
1: Perfect, and is that the best way for listeners to reach you as well on the website? Yeah,
2: they can also reach me on Twitter or on Facebook, Instagram, it's all just Danielle Ofri. And I'll just add one more plug for the Bellevue Literary Review. This is a completely separate you know thing. We publish a journal of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction, about health and healing. And we have lots of literature out there about medicine. We have clinical trials, we have top 10 tips for osteoporosis, but none of that addresses, I think, the other aspects of healthcare, the fears, the vulnerability, certainly things that came to light during this pandemic. and. Often, poetry, fiction, essays are ways to explore all the rest of medicine and healthcare. It's open to all, as both writers and as readers, and it's called the Bellevue Literary Review, and you can find us on the web, too.
1: Thank you so much, Danielle, and thanks for spending a few minutes with us to open our eyes to this issue. I wish you all the best. Please stay safe, stay well, and best of luck with everything. Can't wait to hear what else comes from the book.
2: All right. Thanks so much.
1: And hey, thanks to Danielle and thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to be a part of the marketing forward movement. And you can start by listening, subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends. Healthcare App is a member of the shift.health content network. Go check it out at shift.health. It's podcasts and video series about shifting the way the healthcare is marketed and experienced. So on behalf of Danielle and myself, keep marketing forward. Thanks. And that's a wrap.